welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of September 7th. I'm recording this on Sunday night. I'll release it as I normally do, but many of you are going to be off on Monday for the Labor Day holiday. Enjoy. I suspect you'll be listening to this on the drive-in or whatever it is you do, perhaps on Tuesday morning, which is great. I do want to apologize for when I miss getting an occasional episode out the door on time. I have found that having 65 employees now reporting to me, the uh, entire epic analyst, analyst team. That's significant time sink, but I still want to keep CMIO podcast going. We've got close to 115 episodes out there, and I want to keep it going because I think it's important to continue to share the lessons from other CMIOs. We can learn from each other, and I really enjoy the collaboration. So uh, just forgive me if I if I show up a week later, uh, can't get the episode out on time, but it, they, we will keep them coming. So let's start with, uh, I've got more stories than I probably have time for today. I'm going to shoot for six. We'll see what we can get done. First article comes out of EHR Intelligence, and it is written by Kyle Murphy, September 3rd. Judy Faulkner has high hopes for forthcoming Cosmos technology. Faulkner was most recently a guest of the Cleveland Clinic's Ideas for Tomorrow, a virtual speaker series in which she described the EHR company's work past and present, including how Epic has supported providers over the course of the COVID epidemic. Cosmos is the database that we have been pulling in electronic health information from our customers with their agreement. And we expect it to have 50 million records by the end of 2020. But we're not at the end of 2020 and we already have 60 million in there with more coming every day. Another line or two from uh, from Epic. Still under development, Cosmos has a twofold purpose. It is to provide data for research from participating Epic clients as part of the Epic Health Registry Network, and more importantly, provide evidence-based guidance at the point of care. What This is, uh, again, another quote from Judy. What Cosmos is going to be able to do, and we're writing the code for that now, is not only study Cosmos for research, but to have the physician with the patient next to him or her be able to get from Cosmos, we call it best care for your patient, what others similar to that patient have done and what works best. And then they'll be able to have evidence-based medicine for such a much greater percentage of the patients that they are seeing. Right now, it's estimated we do evidence-based care about 10% of the time. So let's talk about Cosmos for a minute. I love the concept of Cosmos. In fact, when we were approached by Epic, we said, yes, we absolutely wanted to do this. It became even more attractive when Epic said that they were paying for it during the pandemic because we just didn't have resources to put towards it. To be honest with you, if we had to had to somebody doing something, it wasn't going to be an elective project like Cosmos is for us. And we personally, our organization doesn't see huge value in this research piece. We want to contribute so others benefit from our data, but we're not a research institution. We're unlikely to be combing 
that database for clinical insights for research purposes. Love the potential of using it for real-time understanding what other patients like the one next to me, how were how they treated, what disease do they have, and how were they treated. And if Cosmos can do that, that will be revolutionary. But that's a ways off. I don't think that's happening anytime in the next year or two. So Epic right now is just gathering data. They're gathering records. And it'll be interesting to see how well they can continue to grow. They have roughly 50% of the large hospital market share. So they have access. If their major players sign up, this should go. Uh, and they should be able to get the 250 million records that they seek. At uh, That's their, their ultimate goal, it sounds like. So keep your eye on this space in Cosmos. I think it's excellent. And what Epic does, you'll see Cerner will quickly follow. And they should. I think all the EHR companies would be great if we could all contribute to this one database, not a proprietary Epic database. But... Perhaps the NIH would have a database and all electronic health records would send their data there. Just a thought. What do I know? Next article. Let's talk about, oh, this was just a quickie out of EHR Intelligence, how EHR optimization can cut clinician burden for allergists. I don't have any allergists on my EMR, either in my previous system or in this one. I didn't know they were significantly burdened, but it makes sense. Everyone has some burdens, so perhaps the allergists are feeling it as well. September 2nd, this one was written by Christopher Jason. Further EHR optimization, the integration of scribes, and implementation of clinical decision support, and computerized physician order entry could boost patient care and reduce clinician burden for allergists, according to an article published in Current Allergy and Asthma Reports. The authors recommend customized EHR templates that clinicians can easily utilize to view patient medical history. For an allergist, the customized interface would include a history of illnesses such as asthma, dermatitis, rhinitis, urticaria, food allergies, or venom reactions. Other allergy-based templates in EHR optimizations include recording skin allergy testing, immunotherapy dose optimization, integrating the asthma control test, and incorporation of extract ordering. So I'll, I'll stop there. It's very allergy-specific, but it applies generally to all of our specialists. And I don't know that we do such a fantastic job for some of the smaller specialties. I, I imagine if there's an allergist that's part of a large academic medical center, that the Department of Medicine and Department of Surgery are probably getting the lion's share of the EMR analyst attention. And so the poor little allergist out there is probably living with more generic content. Now, if they wanted to pony up a physician builder, perhaps in their system, they'd be able to customize some things and make life better for them and their colleagues. But I do believe that Epic tries to service all, and when it does that, it makes it very difficult to reach the small niche players out there, the, the pulmonologist that only does pulmonary arterial hypertension. They may very well need some different things than standard general medicine or pulmonary, uh, general pulmonary. So it'll be great. The day, this is my commentary, 
when we can bolt on the third party tool where someone comes up with an app that says, I have the best thing for allergists, it can curate all the data they want and it just lays right on top of Epic and through the APIs, it pushes in and pulls out data and I'll hesitate on that. I really think it needs to happen. But if you heard Judy Faulkner's UGM address, I think it was last week, it was a virtual presentation, but she is not excited about other apps pushing data into the EMR. She thinks it's going to corrupt the data and cause havoc. And she is obviously not a fan of interoperability. Although she says she is, uh, her actions tend to speak otherwise. We really do need these apps. Epic cannot be, or Cerner, they cannot be the best in every, in, in every niche of our organizations. We moved away from the best in breed tools that we used to have to go towards this enterprise platform. We probably now need to swing it back just a little bit. You have your enterprise platform, but you're piling on the specific apps that hopefully are going to be relatively low cost and meet the needs of a few players so that they can have a decent quality of life and good interaction because the patient that's sitting in that allergist office or dermatologist office or whatever it is, that visit to them is very important and they don't want their doctor to have the second best product. They want them to have the best when they're treating them. So makes sense to me. I hope we get there and that these interoperability rules shake things up a little bit over the course of the next year. Next one, this one out of Healthcare IT News, it's how St. Joseph's Health reduced fields, time, and clicks in Cerner EHR. Bill Sawicki, September 4th. So here's the specific problem. The challenge at St. Joe's was that the nursing assessment for patient admissions was very lengthy. There was a lot of information in there, so staff were trying to streamline that process on the nursing units, they get a lot of admissions every day and it takes a lot of time to do that initial assessment. And then a quote from Judy uh, Padula, who's the uh, nurse at St. Joseph Health, we want it to be as streamlined as possible so the nurse didn't spend extra time at the computer when they could be using that time caring for patients. And another nurse I believe said this, the beauty of this solution is that it requires no additional training. After implementation of this solution, they're able to achieve a 23% reduction in the total number of distinct elements on the admission forms, eliminating fields that were duplicative or contained irrelevant information. Cerner's expedited solution here helps save nurses an average of 62 seconds per patient encounter, works out to 190 hours a year saved. Nurses also experience 15 fewer clicks per patient encounter, working out to 165,000 fewer clicks per year. So what's my take on this? We're doing the same thing. Actually, we just finished it for our nurses. We did the uh, head-to-toe initial assessment. I think we've now done a few other, like the ICU assessment, or I think there was a pediatric or uh, OB assessment that was done. So these nurses, if you ever take a look at these things, oh my goodness, it's all flow sheet data and they're picking from pick li drop down lists. And so let's say there's lung sounds, they would have a list of perhaps 10 to 15 different options of lung sounds that they could pick because someone 
wanted to put in, well, the lungs sound junky, so now they have junky in there. Someone else would call it ronchi, and someone else would call it uh, coarse rails or uh, uh, presence of fluid. So you look at these things like, why in the world do you need all these fields? Just because one person asked for it and they couldn't get exactly what they want, you're creating cognitive burden for your colleagues when you do this. And we do this all the time. We, we want to make the EMR better for the person who says that they just need this one little thing. Great. But a lot of people are using that tool. And to them, the word junkie, that's just noise. They don't want that in their particular assessment. And so they got to filter through all these extra items in these lists to find the ones they want. And so our nurses went through and they just cleaned house. They just said, no, we're standardizing. They had a committee, a group of nurses together so that this, they had buy-in and said, this is what we're going to do to clean this up. They also, I think, looked at the fields that were being filled out. Is it adding value? Why are we asking this question? Is it for a joint commission? You'll be amazed at the number of questions that are added into a nursing assessment because of some regulatory or some patient safety initiative that whether the nurse is asking the question is, I'm not 100% sure is adding patient safety, but uh, nurse, I don't, I don't usually tend to stick my nose too deep into the nursing workflows, but uh, we all should be cognizant as CMIOs, as CNIOs, we should be looking at the amount of work we're asking people to do and why we're asking to do it. The corollary for physicians is in the order sets. When I look at our order sets, I'm like, why in the world are we asking people to check all these boxes in the order set, does this really add to patient safety? Most of the time, the answer is, well, someone thinks it does, and we've over-engineered our systems. So I think the pendulum does need to swing back a little bit the other way and continue to follow how that progresses. Anyway, uh, congratulations to St. Joseph's for doing this. Um, encourage them to take the class survey. I have nothing to do with class, but if they had an old one, and now you redo it and see how much better your nurses like the EHR after something like this, I bet you you see a nice bump. We did at Peninsula. Uh, we saw our nurses were something like in the 88th percentile of loving the EHR. And I have accused my CNIO of putting Zoloft in the water or something because the nurses just love the thing compared to the physicians, which were not so high. Next article, HHS focuses on telehealth and tech innovations in rural action plan catcher uh, September 4th, 2020. I've actually got three or four quick telehealth articles that we're going to touch on because there's some action going on in this space. So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services on Thursday released an 82-page rural action plan aimed at evaluating and engaging challenges facing rural health care in the country. The plan lays out a four-point strategy intended to address hurdles to providing rural health care including building a sustainable health model for rural communities, preventing disease and mortality, increasing rural access to care and leveraging technology and innovation. This is a quote from Secretary Azar. The Rural Action Plan identifies key tangible areas where HHS agencies can soon make a real difference in the health outcomes of millions of Americans. Let's see, so the plan notes that the Health Resource Service Administration has leveraged about 30 million in fiscal year 2020 to support the expansion of telehealth and that its Federal Office of Rural Health Policy 
will be investing about $8.7 million over the next four years to support organizations through a new telehealth network grant program. That is pathetic. Did you hear that? $8.7 million over four years. That's like gross, tiny, insignificant number. It's a rounding error in the budget. So some experts have noted that the plan references projects that are already underway, while others say telehealth remains short on funding in the HHS plan. No kidding. Holy cow. Now, if they are able to get CMS to pay for telehealth, and that does sound like it's the plan, that will be significant funding. But what we need is broadband access and devices in the hands of patients in rural America. That's where we're falling down. We need cell towers. And HHS probably isn't the one that's going to do that. That's going to be the FCC. And so I maybe understand why that we're only seeing a few million, piddly million dollars coming out of HHS for this. We need infrastructure first, and that's the FCC, and we need billions in that pot. And I believe it's it's in there and coming. So we'll see how well that money gets, gets out there. Next telehealth article, Mayo Clinic's Halema, I hate saying his name. Kalamaka, Kalamaka. Uh, telehealth boom is slowing, but don't expect it to go back to pre-COVID rates. September 2nd, this one was in Fierce Healthcare. Recent electronic health record data from Epic indicates that volumes peaked in mid-April when telehealth visits comprised 69% of total visits. Since then, levels have dropped to make up only 21% of total visits, although this is still much higher than the rate seen before the pandemic, which was 0.01%. Most CIOs that we talk to say they are looking to invest in new platforms and are looking for permanent solutions to scale. Uh, I'll just comment on that. Yes, I think many of us put in stopgap measures. Most have already moved into permanent solutions. And I've heard there's close to 60 epic of my Epic colleagues who have moved towards the Epic telehealth solution, which is powered by Twilio. A lot of others are still using Zoom or whatever else is the other 14 of them that are out there, but they're moving towards permanent solutions. That's a permanent solution. And I think we all need to be getting there. Uh, As COVID has sort of wound down, fingers crossed, wound down here on the Eastern shore of Maryland, we're seeing a lot less there's been a lot less interest and I'm not seeing our IT teams move very quickly on getting a permanent solution in place for us. If this suddenly were to spike again and we were to have an in in, be inundated with COVID, we would be regretting right now that we did not move faster. So I'm trying to prod it along and I think I have the ability to do that in my new role. So we'll get telehealth in place quickly. I think it's important. Let's talk about another paragraph here, which I think is really important. Mayo Clinic scaled up its virtual care services in partnership with Boston-based Medically Home. In July, the two organizations launched an at-home advanced care model for patients in the Jacksonville, Florida, and in also in Wisconsin. And so I'm gonna to jump to that article about the at-home advanced care model. This goes back in time to uh, Fierce Healthcare, June 25th. And I'll just read you what they're doing, in case you're not familiar with Medically Home. Medically Home will provide the technology platform that will enable 
at home care. Under the direction of Mayo Clinic physicians, patients will be able to have services such as infusions, skilled nursing, medications, laboratory and imaging services, behavioral health, rehabilitation services from a network of paramedics, nurses, and other support team members. And the final, one of the final sentences of this article was that technology and regulatory changes have made at-home care offerings more available than ever. In-home healthcare is a booming market and the company has attracted big name investors and health system partners. So I've been looking in this space to understand it better, to see if we want to do it. It makes a ton of sense. If you can take your observation patients that are relatively lower acuity, and if you can properly screen them, hopefully with the help of some predictive algorithms, to say, yes, this one's safe to go home. And that that patient has the appropriate social support to be at home. The patient would probably rather be at home with their family if they can get the same care. And if all you're getting is antibiotics once a day, well, sure, we we probably can do that at your home. And use telehealth to have the care team interacting with the patient to make sure things are going in the right direction. Have Bluetooth enabled tools so that you're measuring vitals and getting that data back to the care team and have pharmacists involved and the paramedics could be in the home helping the pharmacist going through the bottles, seeing what pills are in there and just working through the basics that happen in a, on an admission, but would be happening in the patient's home. It might even be better for the patient that they're there, a lower risk of complications and probably the same level of medical care if it's high touch enough. Now, why are we all doing this? Because it terrifies me to try to coordinate all of this care. So home health has not always been the greatest partner in my mind. Once the patient leaves the hospital and is in the hands of home health, the variability in the care is all over the place. They may show up, they may not. They may appropriately interact with a doctor when the patient has a change in condition. They have the years of experience to know this one's the real one that we need to call in versus the one that's not. And on the other side, you've got a doctor who is willing and engaged to stop what they're doing during the day, take the phone call from the home health nurse and be able to intervene and change the trajectory of that patient. That doesn't happen today on a routine basis. If you are at all involved with home health and care for those at home, it is fragmented, it is difficult, it is frequently unsuccessful, hence the high readmission rate in this country. So consider outsourcing it. Medically Home is one company, there's a handful of others out there. Personally, our, our team, we wrote to Mount Sinai, they have a, a playbook that you can buy, it's like $750 or something very small, to see what they did when they implemented this kind of model. It's worth the $750 for your organization. If you're thinking about taking this leap, order that from, from Mount Sinai. Again, I have no relationship with anyone there, but I liked what I read. And it, it was enough where I could see this is not for the faint at heart. This requires a dedicated project manager. It requires dedicated clinicians. It requires an engaged home health team, probably owned by your system or that they have a tight integrated relationship that they're not going to let you fail here. So 
also probably requires CEO or COO level engagement and buy-in. If you're in a fee-for-service market, you may be wondering, well, will you get paid more by having that patient in the hospital? The answer is probably yes, if you can get them out in time. If you can have a 23-hour stay, fantastic. If they end up staying 72 hours, you're going to be eating that one and your CFO would not be happy. So these things have not traditionally made money. It is the right thing to do. It's the right direction care should go in. And if you're in a capitated environment like I am, this makes a ton of sense. Next telehealth article, another quick one here. Long-term virtual care plans evade providers. And this is a small executive survey. This is in Healthcare Dive. Healthcare executives said their biggest technology challenge during the pandemic was telehealth though nearly all have implemented at least workable short-term fixes, and that's according to a small survey from CLETS. Remote patient monitoring is still a work in progress for most. Only four of the 19 executives surveyed said their organizations currently have a working program. 13 said it's one of the technologies they've enhanced the least during the pandemic. And four executives said interoperability was their biggest challenge, which is probably getting COVID tests from the hospital next door that doesn't have an interface, doesn't share their data, slow getting charts over. We all know how this works. And yes, that is a problem as well. So again, just kind of what I mentioned earlier, have your telehealth solution ready to go. I don't know what this winter is going to look like, but I can picture the normal, if there's such a thing, the normal coronavirus is going to be out there. People are going to get colds. Influenza is going to be out there the SARS-2 coronavirus is going to be out there and it's going to be difficult to distinguish between them and there's going to be a lot of fear, a lot of confusion and a lot of people want to talk to their doctor and they want to do it remotely. I don't want you, if you're sick, in our waiting room getting someone else sick. So having virtual urgent care services is going to be real important. Having that stood up within the next probably six weeks would make a lot of sense. And so who's getting into the telehealth space? Last article on telehealth is that Google is investing $100 million in telehealth provider Amwell, previously known as American Well, and they're going to use the Google Cloud. So as part of the partnership, Amwell will move parts of its business from Amazon Web Services, which is what they currently use, to the Google Cloud. It is selecting Google Cloud as its preferred global cloud partner and moving some video performance capabilities to that platform. Amwell told CNBC in May, that's where I'm reading this from, by the way, this is a CNBC article. It's seen a thousand percent increase in visits due to the coronavirus and closer to three or 4,000 in some places. In its IPO filing, the company said revenue had increased 77% in the first six months of 2020, compared with the same period a year ago, from 69 million to 122 million. However, net losses tripled over the same period, growing from 41 million to 111 million in the first half of this year. And uh, I suspect some of that had to do with they needed providers, they needed physicians, and they may be paying through the nose to get them. They wanted to make sure that the phone calls got answered. They did not want to leave patients hanging when their volume spiked. And so I'm not surprised that they have some losses here. They also probably had to expand some of their technology infrastructure to handle the huge spike, and that may also have contributed. I'm guessing here, I don't know those things for a fact, but it would make sense to me that that's where their costs would be. 
And finally, this one came out from the American Medical Association. 2021 CPT code set reflects tech innovation in COVID-19 response. And so this was the recent release of the CPT code set, which gets done every year. The most significant changes are connected to the first major overhaul in more than 25 years of the code descriptors and guidelines for evaluation and management services. These are delivered during office visits and other outpatient encounters. These foundational modifications aim to make ENM office visit coding and documentation simpler and more flexible while eliminating clinically irrelevant administrative burdens that divert, divert physicians' attention away from patient care. So what are those? If you have not heard, this is really huge stuff on January 1. It's not that far away. They have eliminated the history and physical as elements for code selection. You don't need to put very much of anything at all in there. You're still gonna put in some HPI because you talk to your patient, you wanna document that from a medical legal standpoint, I guess, but you don't have to count elements anymore. You don't have to get your review of systems with all 20 things that you really didn't ask them. So how is it gonna be done? Allowing physicians to choose the best patient care by permitting code level selection based on medical decision making or total time. Thank you, about time, this is huge. So all of my ambulatory associate CMIOs or CMIOs that are out there, your note templates should be cleaned up significantly. I could picture the physician having a couple of quick phrases in their HPI section and then really let them focus on the assessment and plan because it's all we care about anyway. And please put it in APSO format or use EPIC's tool which auto collapses the the HPI and the uh, objective part, the subjective and objective can be collapsed. So the assessment and plan is open and visible and stop making your colleagues scroll to read your note. And that's my final rant for this week. That's the news to know for this week. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.